This is the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. Honored once again to have Monica Heltz with me, the Public Health Director for the City of Fishers. Welcome uh, back, Monica. Good to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Larry. And, and the best news I can reveal at the beginning of this podcast is every time I have spoken to you in the past on a podcast, our lead question was with COVID. It's not today. Woohoo! Uh, we'll at, we'll talk about COVID later on, but the first question is not about COVID. So I, that is that is actually good news in itself. But I want to start off talking uh, about something that you have implemented in recent months. You started at the beginning of the year, and it it's now uh, been largely implemented. That's a rating system for restaurants in the city of Fishers. You're basically checking on their compliance with ordinances, health rules, etc. So. Let me just ask you to explain the program, first of all. Yeah, so um, the CDC and other agencies um, involved in public health have recognized for a while that a rating system improves um, practice among our food operators for um, public health safety measures. So it's considered an evidence-based strategy to um, increase food safety. Um, so we implemented this. We had it passed um, through council um, last fall. And uh, we started using this grade-based rating system uh, January 1 as part of our regular inspection process. So we're still inspecting on all of the same things that are required for all health departments across the state to inspect on. Those are laid out in the state administrative code. We didn't change any of that, but we used FDA guidelines um, and um, kind of risk risk analysis um, for you know the different items that we score um, and that we have to inspect on in order to make a grade-based rating system based on a 100-point scale. So we assign points based on risk, and then um, we basically just turn it into a grade. Right. You have letter grades then, mm-hmm. like we had in school, A, B, C, D, E, F. When just I look- A, B, C. That was my next question. Yeah. Because <laughs> when I looked at the map, I saw that there were a number of A's and some B's I think I found a couple of C's, not too many, nothing below that. Explain how that side of it works. Yeah, so we determined that um, if if something, if a food operator was bad enough to warrant a D or an F, they really shouldn't be operating at that level, and we didn't want to condone that level of practice, and we didn't feel like our residents would appreciate that either. So in the event that an operation would score below the benchmark for a C, um, then we close them and we work with them until they can get up to a high enough standard that we feel comfortable with them opening uh, back up. And at that time, we issue them a C. So... Uh, even if they had closed on the initial inspection, we're going to go through with them additional measures and then um, allow them to reopen, but they would reopen only at a C. I hate to ask this question, but I think this is the question most anybody listening to this podcast will ask. And, and you don't have to get technical about it. Maybe give us a general idea. How bad does it have to get to be below a C? Uh, We've seen some fairly disturbing things on the inspections, and I I don't want to go into them too deeply. Um, But certainly, but the inspections are available for everyone to read, and they are publicly available on our dashboard. That's one of the reasons we make them publicly available. Um, You know, some of it is just the point, the point base um, system. But um, there are other reasons we may have to close a place, even if they don't have a C. Um, The state standards uh, lay out what constitutes critical violations. Um, So in the event of critical violations, we have to close them until they can correct those things anyway. Um, So it may not warrant a C, but they may, it may warrant a temporary closure. An example of that would be if the uh, bathroom, the plumbing is malfunctioning and there was 
a sewage leak of some kind that needs to be fixed before um, before they can be open. Um, uh, there are like grease trap drains and a lot of drainage issues um, that are those types of things. Um, but the restaurant industry, I mean, just not to highlight COVID, but the restaurant industry was hit pretty hard during COVID and they are still having severe staffing shortages. And that really manifests in how much attention they can pay to cleanliness um, and standards. So um, so it is important that um, that we keep inspecting our facilities on a regular basis um, to make sure that we can assure the highest standards of uh, safety and cleanliness for our residents to be able to enjoy eating out. Do all of the restaurants get an inspection over a certain period of time? Yeah, so um, so we're required to inspect all facilities at least once. Um, we uh, are Is that per year or per once per year. Okay. Yeah, so as part of the permitting process, when a when an operator applies for a permit, um, we issue the permit, but then we um, go out at least once a year to inspect that facility. Our grade based rating system, what we're attempting to do, um, and I, I don't. I don't know how close we'll come to it achieving it this year, um, but uh, because as we're implementing this, it's a new process for us. Um, but if a facility has a C on their inspection, then we'll be inspecting them more frequently. So um, our goal is four times a year. I don't know that we're gonna maintain get the, get there this year. Um, but uh, if they're a B, our goal is twice a year to inspect instead of once a year. And if they're an A, our goal is once a year. We also inspect um, based on complaints. So if a person, for example, ate at a facility and they felt like that um, they might have gotten food poisoning from something they ate that they got or obtained at um, one of our operators, then we would go and just do a brief inspection to follow up on that. We also get um, reportable conditions for foodborne illnesses. Um, so when we are investigating foodborne illness and we're taking a health history from a person who has, has a foodborne illness um, confirmed through laboratory testing, then we will, um, if we find out that they obtained food, um, let's say at a Kroger or um, at, a, at a food uh, operator at a, one of our restaurants, um, during the time period where that could have been the source of that illness, then we'll go and do a quick inspection of that place too, just to just to double check that those standards are in place. Are the businesses fairly cooperative when you come and oh, talk yeah. about these things? Yeah, there. I mean, this is nothing new for uh, people in the food business. Uh, health inspections are part of their lives, um, and they've always been part of their lives. And I would say that uh, you know we've done a lot of relationship building since we've um, started this health department on that front. Um, so we have been very deliberate about coming at this from an educational approach. Um, we're not here to penalize the facilities. That is not our approach to inspections at all, which is sad to say kind of unique among health departments. <laughs> um, but it's my belief that um, our approach should always be educational um, because our goal, we should have the same goal, right? The goal should be for people to enjoy their experience at, you know, obtaining food or enjoying food or getting food when they eat out. Um, and that it should be a safe experience for them. They shouldn't feel like they're going to get sick from that. So we should all have the same goal. It's not, you know, it's certainly my goal to um, help those businesses prosper and um, and they will prosper if they're, uh, if their clients aren't getting sick from <laughs> eating there. So we always approach it as how can we help you? You know, here's, 
here's what you need to do to implement this. Like, do you need tools? Do you need resources? Do you need resources in other languages? Because maybe your staff um, don't uh, may speak other languages that we need to find some basic hand washing guidance, for example, or posters um, that can be in that specific language or whatever it is that they need. Maybe they need serve safe training. We offer those. Um, that's a requirement under the state statute too. Um, so we really approach it from a partnership educational standpoint. One thing I learned, I, did, I ran through a program called HSE Engage. HSE Schools, uh, they bring people in. We see what's going on during the school year. They bring people in to talk to us. And even though I've covered the school board for 12 years, I learned that one thing I learned I didn't know was that you inspect all the cafeterias in all the schools, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And uh, so, I mean, there's no exception for them. They, they, you are also uh, inspecting them like, like anyone else. Absolutely. Yeah, they get in as bad. They have to. I mean, that's part of the state law. So, Very good. And just one last question. Have you ever had a situation, because this is a new program, Fred, but have you had a situation where you had a restaurant that was below C and you really had trouble getting them up to speed? I mean, without naming names. Yes. Um, Yeah, we have had a couple that scored below a C and we worked with them in order to um, in order to get them to a place where we felt comfortable that they could open back up. But it's a handful of people where you really have to work with them. Is that what I'm hearing you say? There's a there's a handful of places. And I guess and again, part of it is is staffing. Part of it is lack of education. Um, So we work very hard to make sure that we at least are doing our part to provide them with everything they need to ensure a safe experience for our residents. And if anyone goes on to the Fisher's Health Department section of the city's website, you'll scroll down a little bit and you'll see the map. And it has the grades and you can click on and, and get those reports you were talking about. Yeah, we have an interactive dashboard that links directly into our inspection software. Um, so it's the dashboard has a map. You can look by map. Um, the grades are on the map. Um, I will say the grades, if you click on the grades on the map, you don't get directly to the inspection report, but the list of restaurants is on the left. And that's where you can, then if you click on the restaurant on the left, then it'll pull up the inspection information on the right. Um, It goes directly into our software. So it's it's a little bit tricky to find where the inspection reports are. Basically, you just have to scroll all the way down, um, and then you'll see um, final inspection report or conditional inspection report. We issue a conditional inspection first um, and give an opportunity for the operators to challenge any particular points. They have five days to challenge it, so, and then we also do a quality assurance check um, to make sure that our scores are correct and that they're adding correctly. Um and then we issue the final inspection report. So you may see the conditional, or you may see the final um, when you go in there, but you'll be able to see um, all, of, all of those, the permit, anything you want to see. It's public record, so we're just making it easily publicly accessible. What well, used to be on paper should be on the website. You just have to find it. And uh, you should be able to find it if you're vigilant about just checking it out. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, if you, wa- if you want the information, I know a lot of our residents, I've seen some chatter on social media, um, have kind of dug into this already okay. and, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and found some things and you know maybe made different decisions about <laughs> where they want to go to lunch on any particular day. But um, you know, by and large, yeah. as you saw, most of our restaurants are in the A range and um, 
And um, certainly we feel comfortable saying that all of them should be safe enough for you to eat at um, at, cool. at this point in time. So. Do the restaurants, are they required to show the grade in a, an obvious place when you walk in? Or? So that's part of our rollout. Um, so when we put this through council last fall, um, we, we decided to start um, issuing the grades with our inspections starting January 1. So we've been issuing the grades virtually um, through the inspection reports. Um, But in order to kind of decrease the amount of confusion from the public, if we started like posting them in January on one restaurant and didn't get to the next restaurant until September, (laughs) we decided to um, issue them through our regular online um, inspection software and the, the operators have that information now, and now the public does on the dashboard. Um, but we won't start putting the placards up on the outside of the facilities until September. So okay. the month of September, we'll be going around um, and issuing the placards and put, putting them up for visual reference. So we expect that that's when most people will um, be most aware of this as a new system um, because it will be front and center. Um, there are parameters about how, how close it has to be to the door, how far off the ground, Basically, it needs to be eye level and pretty close to the main entrance. <laughs> It'll be hard to hide it, is what you're saying. Yes. And some restaurants will want it there. Others may not. That uh, yes. just depends on yes. where they... Let's move on to another subject uh, that should be good news because the Indiana General Assembly in the session uh, that they had earlier this year enacted uh, a new law, Governor's Public Health Commission legislation. And I know this. there was a lot uh, discussed at uh, the General Assembly about local health departments and and there was some funding that was put forward what will this mean for your department um well the short end of what this means is an approximate hopeful doubling of our budget um for 2024 and possibly a tripling um in 2025 so the first step um for this funding this is an appropriation through the state department of health um so it replaces a much smaller fund um that every health department received um, the caveats were that the county commissioners have to opt in um, to the to receive the funding. Hamilton County has opted in already. That happened uh, maybe two or three weeks ago. So the Hamilton County commissioners opted in. So we um, the and that only can happen at the county level, at the county executive level, um, and then um, we will get a population based portion of the money that goes to Hamilton County and that's guaranteed to us. So again, it's an approximate doubling of our budget for next year and tripling for 2025. As far as how we're going to use that, we're still working through that. There are a number of um, stipulations associated with that funding um, from the state legislature. They have like it has to address um, core services that they've laid out. Um, and there are percentages, you know, only 40 and not more than 40% can be uh, related to environmental health. So, uh, for example, hiring another restaurant inspector, um, and then 60% or more needs to go to what we usually refer to as population health based services. So, um, uh, and then there are a bunch of different topics that they want addressed at the state level. Um, obviously our demographics and fishers and our, uh, needs in fishers may be different than some of the state priorities. So we'll focus on them a little bit differently um, than some of the other counties, just because we all have different um, priorities in that, but there's some flexibility in how we do that. 
And I think one reason the county commissioners make that decision is because Fishers is sort of a part of a small group. Only a few cities have their own health departments. Most health departments in Indiana are county health departments. So that's why the commissioners and not the city council had the main decision as to whether to accept the funds. I'm not surprised our county commissioners did accept that money. I know Luke Kenley, a former state senator who still lives in Noblesville, was key in enacting that legislation. So I'm sure that uh, Hamilton County was quick to, to get on board. Yeah, he was part of the commission. He was a co-chair, I believe, with Dr. Box on the Public Health Commission. So, well, it's, it's nice to know more money is coming, but you're you're saying that there's way too early to figure out where that money will go, and there are some strings attached. It's Well, it's not too early. We have to submit our budget um, for this new funding to the state by September 1, mm-hmm. but um, we're in our kind of active planning and strategizing phase, and we're doing that um, with the mayor, um, and we'll be bringing it before our board and, and most likely council as well. Well, let me move on to another issue because July is the month where people in our part of the state and a good part of the country see more mosquitoes than any other month during the year. Uh, what I'd like to ask you about is what, do, what does your department do with uh, mosquitoes when that becomes a problem this time of year? And what can individual citizens do to m- mitigate the danger of the mosquito bite? So that's a good question, Larry. And most mosquitoes don't carry disease, right? So from a public health standpoint, this isn't a required activity that public health agencies have to engage in. It's certainly something that um, many public health agencies do engage in um, because mosquitoes do carry some diseases. For example, West Nile um, would be a big one. We just had our first uh, couple of malaria cases in the United States down south um, uh, that originated in the United States um, for quite a while. Um, so certainly mosquitoes do carry some diseases, but most of the mosquitoes that bother people do not carry carry disease. Those would be uh, the ones that come out when it's really wet. Um, West Nile virus um, actually is usually associated with dry weather um, and a different breed of mosquito that comes out there. Um, All that to say, um, our approach is fairly light when it comes to mosquitoes. We do monitor um, mosquitoes. We set traps out. You may see them out in some of the parks. and uh, we send samples off to the state lab for analysis to see if they're carrying disease. Um, if we do have anything pop positive, not just in Fishers, but anywhere in Hamilton County or the surrounding counties, uh, if we have anything pop positive for West Nile, um, then we start monitoring standing water and we have a larvicide that we would apply um, if there is standing water in public places. Um, so we are not, um, our, we discussed it with our board probably two years ago um, as far as what our approach should be. Um, and we decided that we did not want to try to fog at this time and do any of those aerosolized forms of mosquito control. So it's not what I would call a total comprehensive control of mosquitoes in that way, but also we know that the aerosolization techniques also can trigger people's asthma. So typically health departments get just as many complaints from spraying for mosquitoes as they do for the mosquitoes themselves. So, um, asthma's in my family. So that is that, our approach. Yeah. <laughs> asthma's in my family, and I know that's no that's that's no small thing. If you can avoid an asthma attack, boy, do it. And yeah, uh-huh. mosquitoes can also be there. This mostly, I mean, you're right. There are some disease-borne mosquitoes, but that's the exception. I, I think the big thing is it's just a nuisance, right? 
they're mostly just a nuisance and nobody likes to get bit by the mosquitoes. They do, you know, in some cases carry disease. Like I said, West Nile is the, is the one that we're most likely to have around here. So, you know, of course do the common sense things wear long sleeve clothing. It can be light long sleeve clothing. Use your, uh, mosquito, uh, repellent, um, whether you prefer the natural ones, which work pretty well for me. Um, there's a lemon eucalyptus, I think, um, works pretty well. Or if you have one that contains DEET, if you're in a really heavily wooded area where, where, or when you're most likely to encounter West Nile, West Nile, you probably want something a bit stronger. Um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I did say I would talk about COVID, so I'll bring it up here. Because we'll soon, in a few months, be getting into the time of year when immunizations are available for both influenza, COVID, and maybe a few other things. And I, my understanding is there's always, and you know more about this than I do, there's some kind of national group that decides what goes into those immunizations because there are different types of COVID, different types of influenza, what goes into the vaccine to try to prevent certain strains or variations of those two. And there's some others as well. So do we know much about, first of all, when those vaccines will be recommended to people and and, uh, how that may roll out at that time? So I don't have any specific details, but my suspicion is that the COVID vaccines will come out in the fall around the time of the flu vaccines. We usually get those in a, in September, um, and it would be recommended that you try to get your flu shot in September or October so that it will last the majority of the flu season um, to give you the best protection. Um, you're right. There are national groups that make those formulations. Um, with flu, they usually formulate it based on whatever was circulating um, in the southern hemisphere in the um, in the half year prior. Um, so it's and they, they we get the quadrivalent flu vaccine, which means they have four different strains of flu in there. And so it's always kind of a best guess as far as what will cover people the best. And as you know, some years they guess really really well, and some years you. You know, just the, what ends up circulating here isn't um, the same as what they thought um, would be the primary circulating variant. That's why the flu efficacy rate kind of goes up and down. But um, it is still recommended that everyone get a flu shot every year. Um, and uh, the COVID vaccine will probably be on that schedule. Um, I know that they're looking at what the primary circulating variants are right now. Um, and I imagine they'll use that same kind of principle in recommending those. And then there is a new vaccine coming out this fall. I think it's this fall as well. And that's the RSV vaccine. And that will be for older folks um, to protect against RSV, which we saw um, being pretty detrimental um, to the hospitals um, uh, last year. So, Yes, I, I have to say that... Uh uh, I interviewed a doctor on a podcast several years ago, pre-COVID, and he did say that even if the people who try to guess what strains of flu are out there, you should still get the shot, even Absolutely. if they're off, because it could still help you. Yes. So you know, don't let that. You know, even oh, even if you see you know all kind of publicity or news reports saying, okay, we guessed wrong, we didn't get the right, still get it because uh, it still provides a. a pretty good level of protection even anyway. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of misinformation and misperception around flu. Um, so I kind of say that they're, they're doing the best to guess. That doesn't mean don't get it. Absolutely get it. It still does provide some protection. Um, but, and, um, a lot of, a lot of people, something I hear a lot is that, well, I, the year I got the flu shot was the year I got the flu. Well, the flu shot can't give you the flu. That's no. not a thing that happens. 
Um, so, uh, you know, you could have been infected with the flu, you know, around the time that you got the flu shot. Um, and certainly some people experience flu-like symptoms from the flu shot, which um, many people should be familiar with that concept now that we've had the COVID vaccine because the majority of people had some sort of symptom from the COVID vaccine. Um, but, um, but certainly still worth getting the flu shot, not just to protect you, but to protect those around you um, who could suffer serious consequences. And one last question about COVID. Uh, if someone wants to be tested for COVID, that's still a free test, correct? Yeah, we still are offering the COVID test at our um, at our clinic um, off of Technology Drive, um, in, right behind Target, the Super Target. Um, and uh, we are doing those by appointment. So you would um, just pull into a designated parking spot. They're marked, um, have your appointment, and then we'll come out to your car and get you tested. It's free. We, we have grant funding available right now that is supporting that test. And you're seeing much lower... COVID levels now than you've probably ever seen since the outbreak. Oh, absolutely. We also do wastewater testing um, for COVID. Um, so our uh, our water quality folks um, through the city um, do some sampling. We send those off. We were sending it to a partner um, through a CDC program that just switched over to the state lab. Um, but we are doing wastewater analysis so we can see what those rates are doing at a community level, which is pretty interesting. Um, and from that analysis too, so even if people aren't getting tested anymore, um, we can tell in the wastewater that the rates are going way down. Yeah, that wastewater test started early on and uh, like one municipality did it, then another. And now most people are doing that test because it gives you a real feel for the whole community. You know? and, and that testing looks very, very good for the Fishers area. Yeah, and I think that the, the potential for this as a surveillance tool for public health agencies is pretty high. Um, so they're offer actually, um, we have the potential to monitor for um, illicit substances through this um, kind of technique, which um, I think has a, a lot of potential for monitoring community levels of substance abuse. Um, we also, uh, I think that technology has, there's been such an interest in it. There's, um, there's rapid advancements in like checking community levels for flu and, you know, other circulating infectious diseases. I think New York did it for polio when they had that outbreak in monkeypox as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that technology evolves. It's pretty exciting from a public health surveillance standpoint. I don't know how much the regular public well, uh, my, gets into that, but it's exciting I, to me. <laughs> I'm just, the first question people say, okay, you talk about illicit drugs. You can't tell it's me. It's just a whole community. Why? It's just thing. a it's, whole yeah. community of wastewater. So it's yeah. not going we to come back tell. to you. Right? <laughs> we can't tell who it is, but it gives us a sense from a public health standpoint, we deal with large population based, you know, so we say, how can we keep our population healthy? So it's not of interest to us, particularly to try to find out who's using the substance. Um, but it is of interest to us to see how much use there is in our community and um, how much we need to prioritize, um, you know, different resources to make them available, um, depending on how big of a problem this is or is not in, in any given community. So I know when Scott Fadness was elected mayor, he took office in 2015, one of his major issues then and now, mental health, excuse me, <clears throat> and your department has a lot uh, on its plate there. Talk about what you're doing in the area of mental health right now. Yeah, so one of the first things um, that we've, well, we've, we've done a lot of studying about how to kind of move the mental health uh, initiative that Mayor Fadness started to move it upstream and take a more population-based approach to this um, and a more preventative approach. He did a lot of work um, 
in uh, building up our emergency response capabilities in that area. And then, of course, with the school system and putting in place um, uh, at that time, Brooke Lawson's position um, to build that support and structure in the schools. Um, so that was a really that was that was probably the most important thing <clears throat> that we could have done from a preventative health standpoint and a population based standpoint for mental health for our kids um, and for our population as a whole. Um, so when I took this over, um, we did a lot of kind of studying of, of really how to do this because public health departments aren't typically involved in, in mental health work. Now they're starting to talk about it now, um, post COVID, but this is, um, this was not really a thing in public health, um, to really address in this way. Um, and part of that is due to fund, funding coming down from the federal level, um, and the state level, um, Public health and mental health have been separated um, through just through the federal agencies and funding streams, right? The CDC doesn't really address mental health either, and so the State Department of Health doesn't, and then local health departments don't. Um, that comes through DHHS um, and um, uh, FHHS. So, uh, for example, the behavioral health funding that is coming through, it came through a whole different agency than IDOH, the state department of health. So it's just interesting history. Um, but again, there's not a ton of, um, reference for public health departments trying to do this work um, because it has been historically so separated. But I think there's a huge interest. Um, the American Public Health Association theme last year, and then I recently attended the National Association of City and County Health Officials Conference, and both both organizations, their themes have been pretty heavily related to behavioral health um, and social connectedness and things that we know are super important. The Surgeon General just put out his report on that, so I know this is getting a little bit long-winded, um, but uh, <laughs> we did a lot of studying. We've put in place some internal action teams um, through the city, so we're we have every almost every department in the city represented on one of our action teams to try to figure out how we as a city can really create conditions that will that will make things. Uh, as easy as possible for our residents to be mentally healthy and well. One of the first things that we did in one of those teams was to implement a new uh, stigma-free Fishers website. So uh, we hadn't updated that site for a while, had a lot of great resources on it, but we uh, decided to purchase a platform that was built by some public health folks um, called uh, from an organization called Credible Mind, um, and they use uh, evidence-based resources. They have a, a huge team of uh, researchers and um, folks that vet all of the resources that are in there. Um, to build this platform. So we purchased the platform and then we can tailor it to our community. So you'll see our logo on there, our stigma free logo on there. And then we're adding local resources every day um, that can link into this platform. But the platform is really incredible. It has um, assessments that you can take. Um, is my mental health languishing or flourishing is an example of those. Those are all based on evidence-based tools um, that have been um, vetted by these, these expert panels, um, primarily based out of Stanford. Um, and uh, it'll give you kind of a score on where you fall in different areas. And then it will give you tips on and evidence-based resources on what you can do if you want to help yourself. So 
Um, for example, you know, if it says you may be, you may be languishing in this area, you know, you might benefit from more social connectedness. Here are some tools that may be helpful to you, or you, you may be feeling a high amount of anxiety. Here are some evidence-based things that might be helpful. And then it points you to those resources. Um, for example, meditation, it will provide you with apps that you can use, um, for meditation. It will give you podcasts to listen to. It'll give you YouTubes to guide you. It will give you, um, blogs that you can read about. About it. Um, so it's a whole suite of tools and resources, all evidence-based. And then we can link our local agencies and resources. We have our therapist finder tool linked on there um, that people can get more help. All of the national hotlines and crisis lines are on there. 988, of course, being the primary one um, now. But our, our position has been that most people aren't in crisis, right? So how do we give people the tools to help themselves? Because most people just need to help themselves and they need to know that they're getting good information and evidence-based information, right? You go to Google, you can get all sorts of things, um, but who knows but we what want, it is. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But you know, these folks have done the work to filter that and to really provide a suite of services that we can, that we can all use and benefit from. And over 3,400 people have taken advantage of this site already from Fishers, like from the Fishers one. You don't have to be living in Fishers. You don't even have to create an account or put any information in. You can do this anonymously. Um, and we've had over 3,400 people visit that site since May 1 when we rolled it out. Um, we do get data on, um, you know, what kind of assessments people are take, what, taking, what local resources they're using, and the general, like, community-based scores, uh, not, like, not any individual scores or anything like that, and how we compare to other, um, to other communities. So for us, this information can also help us drive, um, just like that wastewater analysis, where we put our efforts and where we put our tools and resources and where we want to put more resources into helping our community. I will say that um, I think it's very interesting that um, our primary users, um, from what we can tell right now, um, appear to be young uh, women, um, which is a very good thing um, because um, that is where we're seeing the most visits to the ER for suicidal ideation and attempt. Um, so Do we, we know why? We don't know why, but it mirrors um, it mirrors what they're seeing at the national level. So all the reports are, are talking about adolescent girls specifically going to, um, are in crisis. And, you know, there's a lot of theories about how social media plays into that, how COVID played into it, um, you know, perception, you know, being different than reality on social media um, and those types of things. Um, so I, I can't say for sure if that's the cause, but this is definitely the demographic that is most at risk right now. Um, so I'm glad that this is um is is getting this tool is available for that demographic at least um and uh and pretty excited that you know that people are using it they're they're over 3400 people so far have used it that's a lot and over a thousand people that, yeah. have taken the assessments that's yeah. a lot too as well. yeah um Today is July 18th when we record this. Uh, you had told the city council a few weeks ago that you have some job openings. Is that still the case? Yeah, we're um, currently hiring for two public health nurse positions. Um, and then we have um, also a part-time food inspector position that if we find the right qualified candidate, we would love to hire for. Um, and then... Uh, those are, those are the ones that are open right now. We you know hope to have open positions for the future with this new funding. It's great to say the new funding could uh, <laughs> create a whole new uh, vista for for that. Anything you would like to add before we wrap this up? 
Um, yeah, I'm just excited about where we're, you know, what we can do for the future and, and how we might, um, you know, better, but where we can drive the community's, um, health and wellness going forward. Like it's pretty exciting time, I think for local public health, and it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, how this, how this impacts people. Monica Heltz is the Public Health Director for the City of Fishers. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for your time. Yeah, no problem, Larry. It's always nice to talk to you, too.